The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste, good evening to all of you. For the satsang of tonight, I want uh, to have a continuation of the satsang from last week, as I mentioned already. Uh, last week I made a presentation for the people of the school of the general philosophical metaphysical idea of Tantric Yoga to make you understand how Tantric Yoga in general is different from other orientations, from other styles of Yoga. Why in Tantric Yoga people sometimes do things in a different way and uh, what is the metaphysical meaning, and making you understand at the same time the richness of this Tantric Yoga. We consider that Tantric Yoga is metaphysically the most accurate form of Yoga. It represents the holistic truth. It represents the truth of the universe expressed in a complete way, because often the truth is expressed in other spiritualities only in a partial way. So this being said, now, now that last time we talked about Tantric Yoga as this energy-based yoga and all the other characteristics which are there, I'm going to narrow the field and among the fields of Tantric Yoga, I'm going to speak a little bit about what is Agama Yoga. Agama Yoga being a name which is not very well known, like if you ask people about what is, I don't know, Ayengar, Vashtanga, other and other names, I again don't want to particularize any one of them in any way. Um, however, Agama Yoga, probably before you came to Agama, you didn't hear much about it. And I want to make you understand what it is because this will give you a hint of where it goes, what type of yoga it is, what can you expect, what sort of methods are there. And of course, we start from saying clearly that Agama Yoga is primarily a type of Tantric Yoga because what we do here is very much based on energy, on energy centers, on energy channels, on resonance with the different energies. So in everything, we use this angle. To make you understand, because the name Agama Yoga, the Agamic tradition, existed way before Swami Vivekananda. And um, the name is traditional. It was used in Kashmiri Shaivism, a thousand years ago when they described it as the Agamic tradition. And that's why first, before I tell you how I got to be part of this tradition and um, a little bit of the history of the thing, which is not so important, I don't want to insist too much on history, I want to insist on the facts, on the technical things, I would like to highlight for you some of the rich meanings of the term Agama, first of all in India, and then how it's shown, how it spread outside of India. In uh, Sanskrit, Agama means, in a Hindu context, 
a traditional doctrine or system which commands faith. It, is, it represents, therefore, that the Agamas, the texts called Agamas, there are texts which are called Agamas, the 64 classical Agamas, are the primary source and authority for yoga methods and instructions. Like even a text like Yaranda Samhita or Shiva Samhita, they are considered to be Agamas as typology of texts. The, therefore, the Agamas, which are basically tantric texts, they are part of the tantric tradition, they represent a non-Vedic collection of Sanskrit scriptures, non-Vedic, remember, which are revered and followed by millions of Hindus, like Agamas, like Mahanirvana, Tantra, or other great Agamas. They are known throughout parts of India, not the whole of the tradition, but parts of it. That's why the Agamic tradition is part of the Indian spirituality a lot. Like when people in Bengal are worshipping Kali, how did they get to hear about Kali? Who introduced this concept that there exists a cosmic power which can be symbolized by the body of a black woman and this represents time and this and that? This is introduced by the Agamic tradition. It does not exist in the Vedas. It does not exist in the Upanishads. It does not exist in the Puranas, in the classical Puranas. This is something which is introduced by the Tantric tradition. That's why, funnily, um, much of what is happening in India, even at present, in the Indian spirituality, is Agamic. But the esoteric parts of the Agamas, like the Asanas, the Mudras, the Bandhas, and many of things, not only Hatha Yoga, there is way more than that, those are things which are not widely spread. So the Agamas have a part which is more popular and which reaches the population and they have a part which is more esoteric and which reaches the initiates. Thus in India we can define actually the existence of Shaiva Agamas, Vaishnava Agamas, Shakta Agamas, that means texts belonging to the Tantric tradition in which the prevalence in the Shaiva Agamas is given to the Shiva aspect, Shiva talks, like in the Shiva Samhita. Shiva talks in the first person, says, I, Shiva, have generated the 84,000 asanas and all that. Vaishnava Agamas, which are less spread, but still, even in Bali, some of the Balinese Hindu culture is a Vaishnava Agama type of culture where Vishnu is the image of the divine which is preferred by those people, and Shakta Agamas, in which Shakti is emphasized, the aspect of energy is taken, uh, is given maximum importance. To, to jump to something very high, which needs to be thought about a lot, um, the word Agama, which found its prevalence mostly in the northern tradition in Kashmir, like Agamas are all over India and outside of India, but especially the Kashmirian yogis, which are holding a form of tantric yogic practice which is very dear to us here in Agama, which is very spiritual, extremely elite type of teaching, extremely hallowed, very, very special, which is up appearing in our Kashmiri Shaivistic teachings, either in workshops or in the teachings which we give. 
So this tradition blossomed in the north of India. I'm going to tell you how we are related to that here in Agama. But in that tradition, that tradition insisted very much on the term of Agama. Many people would say, well, Agama seems to be a text which is a, a term which is equivalent to Tantra. So if you say Agamic tradition, you say Tantric tradition, which is very much true. But people in academic and high levels of yoga, they prefer to speak about Agama. This is a term which is more esoteric, while the term Tantra, especially in the second half of the 20th century, got this connotation that it's something mostly focused on sex. And uh, while the Agamic tradition is definitely, Agama is a name which is not spoiled in this way. According to the greatest master of Kashmiri Shaivism in the 10th century, Abhinavagupta, who is arguably one of the greatest spiritualists that India has produced, but he is not as well known as Shankaracharya or Ramakrishna or others who have been much more popular figures, while Abhinavagupta has been a high-level initiate and lived a very discreet, esoteric life. He did not come in the limelight too much. And Abhinavagupta even gives a definition, because he is part of the Agamic tradition. His texts are Agamas, and he says the word Agama, he defines it, he glosses it, as divine speech that forms the life of the other means of knowledge. Basically, Abhinavagupta says Agama is like the speech of God, because in the Agamic texts, the goddess says, Oh, Shiva, you who are my higher self, please reveal this. How does one do this, or what is this, or what is that? And Shiva says, this is a very relevant question. Here it is. And then the text starts. Most of the Agamas are presented in India for the purpose of making it palatable, easy to grasp. They are presented as a dialogue between Shiva and Shakti. So since Shiva speaks, then they would say that the Agamas are the speech of God. It is a little bit of the same concept, which is controversial in a way and has been ridiculed at times, in which in Christianity, the Bible both the Old Testament and the New Testament is considered as being written by the Holy Spirit. And people say, yeah, my ass written by the Holy Spirit, because uh, there are many grammatical errors, there are different styles, linguists, uh, anthropologists, experts can find all sorts of linguistic things and say this comes from this century, this comes from that century, because the Hebrew or Aramaic language which was used is this or that, and so on. But still the theological authorities would say you are talking about who actually took the pen and put it on paper. But we are talking about the fact that the person who took the pen and put it on paper was in a state of trance and did a sort of automatic writing like in Spiritism. And therefore they wrote, physically they were the ones that wrote, but actually they were inspired by a higher force. The same principle would apply in India and in Tibet, where many texts are supposed to be revealed, Terton texts in Tibet, or some of the Agamas and others, and then some very materialistic scholar will say, oh, this was written by some dude, 
in the 5th century BC, and he didn't even speak a very correct Sanskrit language or something like that. But the point being that the persons would say, well, what if that person had been experiencing the state of Samadhi for 20 years? And now when he was writing this, he was still in a state of Samadhi, therefore in communion with the divine consciousness. And he wrote it, but it was not him anymore who was writing, causally speaking, because there was a higher force there. It is like Paul, the Apostle of Christ, who writes his famous letters, which are part of the New Testament today. They are canonic texts. And Paul, the Apostle of Christ, says, because now... It is not I, Paul, who longer lives, but it is Christ Jesus who lives in this body. Like basically says, I do 100% of what Jesus makes me do. I'm like possessed by Jesus. So what I write, it's like secondhand writing from Jesus. Of course, skeptical people can always contest this and say, yeah, right, you know. So that's, that's exactly the difference between faith and no faith, and that can be argued. Fact is that the Agamic texts have been written by somebody on paper. The question is what state of consciousness were in the people who wrote those texts. That's why Abhinavagupta starts by saying Agama is the divine speech that, formed the life, that forms the life of other means of knowledge. Other means of knowledge, it means other transmissions, explanation, ways in which you know. But before all the ways in which a person knows, there are the agamas. There is the divine speech which initializes the whole thing. So, according to Abhinavagupta, this word agama therefore means the internal activity of the pure consciousness it's like something which happens between shiva and shakti shiva talks to shakti it's consciousness talking to itself because shiva is shakti and shakti is shiva shakti is just the mirror in which shiva sees himself and that's why this is a sort of a dialogue inside the divine consciousness therefore as Abhinavagupta says, I continue, there's a whole paragraph here, I'm paraphrasing, now I'm not quoting him. Basically, what Abhinavagupta calls Agama consists in a firm hold of consciousness, like awareness. Like you have, it's an awareness, and it owes its name to that it allows to one to know, symbolized by the Sanskrit syllable gam, the object under all its aspects symbolized by the prefix a so therefore though you have the word agama therefore it is called an agama an ensemble of such holds of consciousness of such awarenesses of such uh, insights or convictions or beliefs expressed in words yet the tantric tradition acknowledges that the agamas when you are confront you read geranda samhita or Shiva Samhita, or Vijnana Bhairava Tantra, or whichever it is, the Agamas trigger strong beliefs only under certain circumstances, in certain epochs and places, only to the people who are qualified for understanding and applying them, and who give them credit, believing in their teachings. Like you are in a yoga school where the Agamic tradition is taught, 
And then when your yoga teacher says, we're somewhere in the Agamas, they talk about cleaning your tongue in the morning, then you are willing to give it a try. And for one month you clean your tongue, and that's something which changes a lot of things in your life. Just some small kriyas which you do in the morning. You know, why some people would say, ah, why, like if they are so good, you can ask yourself, why doesn't the whole planet practice this tongue cleaning or vamana dauti in the morning or some other simple things when they are so good and so useful? But it's because the Agamic tradition doesn't catch with everybody, exactly even as the message of Jesus presented in some environments and in some circumstances, people shrug shoulders and they pass on. They go further. Like it has to catch under special conditions. In a yoga school, under the supervision of teachers that have practiced these things to a certain extent, look, the Agamic tradition becomes alive again because it is immemorial. It's not something which you existed only a thousand years ago. The speech of Shiva is outside of time because it's God talking to God and that is valid now as well as 5,000 years ago and as well as 5,000 years from now. That's why the name Agama is very exalted uh, when we are given this name, when one of my gurus suggested that this name should be applied, then it was a big responsibility because basically it was a dharma, we were given this karma yoga to keep this agamic tradition alive and it has so many aspects in it. The agamic tradition have been the source of early yogic and self-realization concepts in India. They have influenced thinkers and philosophers who sought an alternative to the excessive ritualism and sacrifices of the Vedic system of that time. Like when you read, because many people say, oh, the Vedas, the Vedas are something big. Uh, don't believe Svadhisthanistically and credulously, naively, candidly in such a statement. Why don't you grab an edition of the Vedas and read them for yourselves? I can promise that by the time you've read 50 pages from any of the four Vedas, you are going to feel sleepy and tired and you are going to feel like you would like to put your feet in a basin with cold water to refrigerate them a little bit because it's all very convoluted and there is nothing practical. Nothing. Like you can read one whole Veda, the Rig Veda, the Atharva Veda and so on and then after you read it you'll scratch your head and you'll say, so, so now what? Like okay, I made the big effort, I read Atharva Veda or Yajur Veda, or which one of them? And so what? So what am I going to do now with that? Nothing. Like, the problem is that the Vedic tradition, which started once upon a time, it was addressing to people not from this Yuga, it was addressing to people from Dvapara, Treta, and even Satya Yuga, perhaps. And those people had a different consciousness. Those people, when they read some things, Things were happening as if they would have been in a self-hypnosis and they could produce effects almost instantaneously. Great yogis in India who described the yogis of Satya Yuga, they said exactly as people now in Kali Yuga, when they close their eyes, if they are reasonably healthy mentally, 
they start producing alpha waves. It's mo the most simple way of producing alpha waves is just close your eyes. If you are very stressed out, then it will be hindered to a certain extent. But if you are a reasonably relaxed person, close your eyes. In 10 seconds, your brain produces much more alpha waves. Not 100%, but much more alpha waves than before. So while people today, if they close their eyes, they produce alpha waves, great yogis said people in Satya Yuga, if they close their eyes, they went straight into the state of samadhi. They experienced cosmic consciousness. Therefore, for such people, the Vedas sound in a different way. If you would be in a state of cosmic consciousness and somebody would start reading the Vedas, you would have a very peculiar understanding which is not in the text, but it is something beyond the text. It is something addressing a different level of consciousness. Well, those people exist no more. And because people have changed, the yugas have changed, the traditions of India, and not only of India, have adapted themselves to the psychology of the new people who are supposed to be able to derive some benefit. That's why the newer yogis, starting about 25 centuries ago, when Buddha himself proclaimed that the Brahmanic traditions and the Vedas kind of suck, like Buddha simply said, they are not valid. Something new is required. So why do they still read the Vedas 25 centuries later? 25 centuries, not 25 years. And it's because they don't believe what Buddha said. They think that ah, Buddha was a little bit too much. He just put down everything. Buddha simply said these Vedic things and all the rituals and formalism and sacrifices and all these fire ceremonies and so on, they are obsolete. People should do and then. So Buddha would say, you better do Vipassana. Vipassana is much better than if you are searching for spirituality. Forget about sacrifices, rituals, Vedas. Do Vipassana, apply the four noble truths which I gave to you. But even Buddha is 25 centuries ago. The world has changed a lot. Not radically, but it has changed a lot. And therefore, in India, at the same time with Buddha, Patanjali wrote the Yoga Sutra and gave birth to the classical yoga, which did not exist before. Before 25 centuries, when Krishna, 35 centuries or more, talks about yoga, Krishna talks about another yoga than Patanjali writes in his papers. And that's why what I'm trying to make you understand is that yoga has changed along the centuries because it's alive. It's very difficult to see that some religions are 2,000 years old, 2,500 years old, and maybe more, and they cling to the same statements which were written 2,500 years ago. But the world is not the same. The human being still has seven chakras and an immortal soul. But for example, when you are dealing with a world of internet and television, you are addressing people who are very, very differently formatted in their brains than people who lived in the 10th century Kashmir, to just mention a thousand years of difference. And that's why... Um, the people were looking for alternative ways, like what is the way to achieve the self-realization now? And thus, the Agamic tradition has appeared as this pragmatic tradition, like you 
stretch your legs, you catch hold of your toes, and that is called Paschimottanasana. And when you do Paschimottanasana, the energy is rising up along your spine, and it activates the root chakra, and with this Paschimottanasana, you can obtain this, and you get this result, and it has this effect. This did not exist before the Agamic tradition. It's something very practical and pragmatic, which has appeared in the last 2,500 years because of the need of the spiritual seekers of India and later to find some methods which are more concrete because just listening to the Vedas started not working. Like even the yoga tradition, the, the, this agamic tradition, sometimes rubs it in the face. It says if you are still very much believing in the Vedas, you are a retard, you are a spiritual retard, because those are obsolete since long. And the text like Hatha Yoga Pradipika and the text like, I think, Geranda Samhita or Shiva Samhita, two of those three, they say, uh, you know, Shambhavi Mudra is like a noble lady compared to street prostitutes as compared to the Vedas. You know, like offends the Vedas saying, basically, if you should go alone on an island, like Robinson Crusoe for the rest of your life, don't take the Vedas with you. Take Shambhavi Mudra. Like Shambhavi Mudra alone in this age is going to give you way more results than reading the Vedas. It's not because the Vedas are not great, but they are addressed to someone else. They were written by some very old people for some very old people. And that's why the Agamas are sometimes known as Tantras. So many people say, so Swami, if you say Agama Yoga, it's as, as if you'd say Tantra Yoga. Yeah, but we definitely did not want to call the school simply Tantra Yoga. Come to Kopangan to Tantra Yoga. Because Tantra Yoga is, has become in the modern times a much more generic name, which designates a whole class of things. Not to mention that out of obsession... Many Westerners emphasize too much on the sexual angle to it, while the sexual practices in Agamas and in Tantra Yoga, they cover about 10% of the contents of that. Yes, sexuality is relevant, it is powerful, it is omnipresent. Yes, sexuality does give results, so those who choose to do that path, they do have some results, but at the same time, sexuality is not everything, right? Because then we'd say that, Udhyana Bandha and Nauli and uh, Laya Yoga Meditation and 150 other superb methodologies of Tantric Yoga, they are secondary. No, they are not. They are very, very important. It's funny that we find then when we look across the Indian tradition, we find the name Agama in other contexts, like even the Jain religion, Jainism, uses the name Agama, and in Jainism, the Agamas are canonical texts of Jainism based on Mahavira's teaching. Mahavira's preachings were orally compiled by his disciples into various sutras or texts, which were collectively called Jain, canonical, or Agamic literature. So it's funny that although in, Agam in Jainism they refer strictly to their religion, but the name Agama was, was preserved. Like, even though this means our pond, our tradition, nevertheless the name Agama designates that which is sacred, that which is spiritual. Uh, 
In Buddhism, the, for example, the word Agama, which is preserved even in the Pali dialect, where most of the early Buddhist scriptures were written, and where it means sacred work or scripture. So the Agama is the coll- is, means a collection of early Buddhist scriptures, which were preserved primarily in Chinese translation. So we are talking about early Buddhist scriptures at the time when Buddhism went a lot to China, at the time of Bodhidharma and some of the early patriarchs of uh, Chinese Buddhism, the Mahayana Buddhism. And uh, there is also a lot of substantial material in this Buddhist Agamic text surviving in Sanskrit and lesser but but still significant amounts surviving in some Gandhari and in some Tibetan translations. The Tibetans inspired themselves a lot from this Agamic literature, but later it became rendered in Tibetan by Marpa, the translator, and other big translators of the tradition. So today, um, you have it in Tibetan there. In the, it is interesting, I found the word uh, Agama when I was browsing through bookshops in Malaysia, and I asked the Malay people, what does it mean? Like, I found the name of Agama there, and what is it? And they told me that in Malay language, the word Agama literally means religion. So by a very strange consonance of names, even far remotely from India, the word Agama still preserved some spiritual meaning. Funnily enough, somebody called my attention that even in the Greek language, the root gam, gametos, is designating the sexual glands of like the ovaries for women and the testicles for men, and agam, agama, would mean actually with no sex, which would mean celibacy. So, therefore, there are so, some many uh, meanings of the word. Here in Agama Yoga, we are the proud uh, inheritors, heirs of some of the most powerful tantric types of yoga that existed in India. And the first of them is the category which is uh, illustrated in India by an almost vanished school. A few hash-smoking babas are still surviving out of the tradition here and there. That's the legendary Natha Sampradaya. Sampradaya means doctrine, teaching. So Natha, N-A-T-H-A, which, is, which was focused very much on Hatha Yoga, Kundalini, healing aspects of yoga, connections to Ayurveda, the alchemical, like the use of vegetal, mineral, and other unusual products such as urine therapy, and so on. Some aspects of shamanism included to it. Very powerful headlines, very powerful flagships of this Nata Sampradaya. It became really powerful in approximately the 7th and 8th century in the West Bengal and today's Assam, in the eastern corner of India, towards Bangladesh there, uh, where two very powerful yogis lived and started this tradition, like restarted it. Uh, They were, of course, the great guru Matsyendra and the great guru Goraksha, the disciple of Matsyendra. Actually, in their full name, they are called Matsyendra Nath and Goraksha Nath, 
to show exactly that they are part of Nath. Nath or Adinath, Adinatha is a name of Shiva and they were focusing on this. This Nata Sampradaya, if any one of you goes in India, you will find some reminiscences, very disappointing. I never found a full-fledged one. I found some uh, dribbling saliva through the corners of their mouth because of smoking too much dope. And, um, but you, what you recognize, the Nata Sampradayas, if you are having a, a sort of a affinity for the Indian traditions, is that the Nata Sampradayas, they split their earlobe. They stretch their earlobes until it becomes gigantic. Then they split it like you'd put earrings in it. Only instead of earrings, they put a big piece of wood. They have some wooden things which they put in the hole of the earlobes. So this is showing the, their belonging to the Nata Sampradaya. Most of the things which we have here, from wherever I got them, part of them from the Shivananda teachings and the Satyananda teachings, part of them from Dhirendra Brahmachari, part of them from Swami Gitananda's teachings, part of them from Swami Munishanand, my Diksha Guru, and other such gurus. Um, most of these parts, like the asanas, pranayamas, mudras, and bandhas from Hatha Yoga, most of the things of Kundalini Yoga, most of the applications which exist in texts such as Hatha Yoga Pradipika, Geranda Samhita, Shiva Samhita, and which define healing aspects of yoga. Like when you do this, your digestive power is going strong and all that. All these belong to the mighty Nata Sampradaya tradition. They were the ones who very much worked with the body. Some of the Nata Sampradaya people, when they mixed up with the Sufis in the western parts of India, in, Beng in, I'm sorry, in Bombay and south of Bombay, there are some ethnic enclaves there where you have Sufis practicing, uh, Muslims practicing Sufism, but at the same time they got some Nata Sampradaya techniques. And they don't practice them with a Shiva thing like typically Hindu, because they are Muslim and this would be a sort of pagan thing for them. So they pray to Allah like every Muslim would do, but they do lots of Hatha Yoga. And these Hatha Yogis from Bombay, which are Muslim, but who practice methods of Nata Sampradaya, they are the ones who made famous some of the most excessive things of physical culture in India, like people that sleep on a bed made of nails, people that can amputate a part of their body and then stick it back and it would stick as if it was always there, people that can dig their head into the sand and not breathe for three hours, people that can pierce their body with metallic objects and they don't bleed, they don't feel pain, people that can break chains with their elephant chains, with their bare hands, people that can have a tractor running with its wheels across their chest and their ribcage doesn't break and they don't die, people that are digging themselves into a hole in the ground or in a grave, in a tomb, and they bury them and they can stay seven days without breathing and without their heart beating, and then they revive. So people who go in this suspended animation things, and other of these excessive, exotic, weird things of India, which Westerners thought, oh, that's yoga. Yoga is, uh, it means you sleep on a bed of nails or you do some funny things like this. Actually, some yogis of India did that 
exactly by using the physical tricks from Hatha Yoga and Kundalini Yoga of Nata Sampradaya, mixing it with religious practices, in this case Islamic practices, and trying to simply, through their yoga, try to demonstrate the power of God. Like yoga became a sort of showing off for giving faith to people. You see this person prays to Allah, and then they cut off his tongue, and then they stick it back, and it's there. Allah Akbar, you know, glory be to Allah, because see what people who believe in Allah can do. But the practices were actually taken from Nata Sampradaya, and uh, again, the, uh, the symbiosis is, is fine, uh, people are free to pick up and do their own symbiosis, and therefore this inclination towards healing, not much yoga, traditional yoga has inclination towards healing, it's not a coincidence that most of the healing yoga teachers in the early 1930s, 40s, in the modern days, that is, they appeared in the area of Bombay. Like Sri Yogendra was one of the greatest doctors, healers, uh, and he taught in Bombay. Uh, also the other one, uh, Swami Kuvalayananda, who opened the institute in Lonavla, where the first recorded yoga hospital of India was opened, they were, and which, uh, which is a city about 80 kilometers from Bombay. So in that area, there was a lot of this practice, and that's why you found a lot of insistence on the healing aspects of yoga. Also, the connections with Ayurveda, that simply means understanding the doshas from the standpoint of the chakras, of the energies, what is happening when you do pranayama, what is happening if you eat uh, a lot of black pepper or chili and then you do pranayama on this chakra and this and that. So this angle, which is very powerful, we love it here in Agama. Also what they call vegetal alchemy, there is a part of Ayurveda which rejoins yoga and which is called Rasayana, and in Rasayana, basically, they are talking about paranormal effects of physical potions, such as you clarify quicksilver, you mix it with urine, with your own urine, you mix it with the juice of some plant or with some sulfur powder, and then if you drink that for one month, you start seeing auras. It opens your third eye, and you develop clairvoyance to see auras. I'm not giving it literally, those of you who are interested in my translation of the Damaru Tantra, the book, the traditional text on urine therapy, there is a little brochure of urine therapy, which I have uh, made many years ago. And uh, in that one, you find such formulas based on urine therapy and things, some of them being paranormal, like some of them are not just that this heals your liver, and this increases your vitality. Those are things which you could explain rather physiologically. But then there are things which say when you do this for one year, you can see the past, the present, and the future. That's not a physiological thing anymore because it refers to something which is paranormal. So, and even some forms of shamanism, being a tantric yoga and working with Ayurvedic things, in Ayurveda there are special chapters in which they claim that some form of virus and bacterial influences, as well as especially some forms of mental disease, are actually the effect of possession by demons. And therefore, some, some healings have to be done by exorcism rather than by eating uh, chamomile or some things like that. 
and therefore there is at the borderline between Ayurveda and yoga, there is a bit of a field of shamanism, demonology, what are these spirits of nature, how do you interact with them, what will they do if you trespass or if you offend them, how to stay away from such mistakes, and therefore there is a very thrilling and very occult field there, which again we do have in our field. So at least one quarter of what we do here in Agama is based on this huge tradition of Hatha Yoga, Kundalini, healing, Ayurveda, alchemy, shamanism, and all the heritage which we have from Matsyendra and Goraksha. Another pillar of what Agama Yoga has inherited in its tantric tradition are the practices of a legendary school of India today considered disappeared, Um, Still some people say that underground there exist some manifestations of it. The famous Kula or Kaula. Kula means inner circle or noble family, elite. It's like uh, your circle of trust or something like this. And it's like the noble people, the family, but it means the family of the guru. In India they call the intimate pupils of a guru, Guru Kula like the inner circle of the guru. And this school, Kaula, um, they were people who were from the middle and upper class of old India. They were not ascetics living naked in the forest. These were people who lived uh, in houses, in palaces, and they had material means. And these people were great adepts of the sexual tantric practices. From them, the Kaulas practiced very much Shaktism, the worship of Shakti. That's where we in Agama, we got mostly this Shakti aspect with uh, Shakti groups, uh, the femininity workshops, uh, and many other things, even the festival of Shakti, which we had now in June and which will make into an annual tradition. And this is the tradition where we have the Mahavidyas, like the Mahavidyas do not exist in the texts of Nata Sampradaya, and they do not exist, on the other hand, in the texts of Kashmiri Shaivas. They are another tradition. This Kaula tradition in, was very powerful in the Himalayas, in the northeast of India. It, even in Nepal, you still have some, many of the Nepalese Hindu traditions are still uh, very full of Kaula elements. So the Mahavidya tradition, the ten great cosmic powers, some of you know what it is, some of you don't know, but that is the personification of the forces of the universe as female forces, such as time personified as Kali, time personified as a destructive goddess, because time is destructive most of the time, if whatever, starting with your body and finishing with this yoga hall, starting with Mount Everest and finishing with the pyramids of Egypt, the time is going to kill them all sooner or later. It's just a matter of time. So, therefore, they practice these personifications, deifications. The Shaktism, here you find, as I said, the sexual tantra. Many people say, where, where do people write things like what you do or what you teach in the tantra workshops? In the Kaula tantric texts, like Kularnava tantra, a little bit of the Mahanirvana tantra, and other tantras, the Yoni Tantra, and other tantras which exist in the Kaula tradition, they are coming from this trend. 
and uh, they are the ones who work a lot with yantras because of the cosmic powers and all that. They were the ones who used a lot of ritual, although ritual is an almost omnipresent thing in, in the Indian spirituality. But still, the tantric ritual is very present in the Kaula tradition. So this Kaula part is fitting excellent with uh, Nata Sampradaya. In the Nata Hatha Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, these things are not said very openly. Like many people say, well, where are the yogis doing this? But it's a well-known thing. And that's why many gurus in India, traditionalist gurus, like even Krishnamacharya, the guru of Iyengar, who was teaching uh, these forms of more gymnastic Hatha Yoga, even he applied this, like they refused to teach Hatha Yoga to women. Why? Because both with men and with women, it is known that a powerful practice of Hatha Yoga makes your body very vital, radiant with health and vitality, and then your body will want to express itself sexually because all your glands and all your organs will be full of energy and health. And then, of course, you cannot pretend you haven't got sexual glands in your body. And therefore, and in India, due to the influence of the last eight centuries of Indian spirituality, which means suppressive sexually, they didn't want women to go horny. And they knew that if women will do lots of hatha yoga, they would want to be sexually active. And then if they were not married they will just go and get themselves one or several sexual partners. And then we can't have that, can we? And therefore, they preferred to say women should not be initiated in Kundalini Yoga and Hatha Yoga because like then they will become fornicators. They will become really active sexually. So, what I'm trying to say in the Nata Sampradaya, these things are not very well established. And many people dialogued until a Western author, Andre van Lisbeth, indirectly one of our teachers here because much many many of the yoga things which you learn and even many of the papers which you have in your courses are inspired from some of Andre van Lisbeth's writings or some of his direct teachings Andre van Lisbeth pointed at texts he wrote a book on tantra which made him very unpopular among some babas from India and uh, he pointed to the fact that the yoga tradition even the hatha yoga writes very openly about this sexual thing, even if it doesn't go into Mahavidyas, rituals, transfigurations, but it's there. Like even the Shiva Samhita and uh, others, the, the Geranda Samhita and uh, Hatha Yoga Pradipika in a slightly similar way, <clears throat> they, they would describe some mudra from Kundalini Yoga, like in particular they would talk about Vajroli Mudra, and then they would say, the yogi who does Vajroli Mudra, even if a very vital and sensual woman sits herself on his lingam, he will not shed his semen, as strong as the sexual excitation might be. Like, if you are not having sex, why would you even mention that? Like, why would a sensual woman sit on the lingam of a yogi practicing uh, Vajroli Mudra? if this was not something which was actually happening now and then, probably. You know? So it's like, obviously, this is a very discreet, uh, indirect Indian way of saying, sure, in this tradition, people also, as soon as you practice Hatha Kundalini, probably you will, your physical body will feel inclined towards 
practicing sexual things as well. So, because the people who did not practice sexual things, they actually practiced mortification, like killing the body so that you won't wake up with a hard-on in the morning. The most frequent mortification, of course, then being fasting. It's the most simple way to kill horniness. If you are horny beyond measure, fast 24 hours. If it's not enough, fast 48 hours. If you are still horny after 48 hours, go to 72 hours. And I promise by the time you reach to the seventh day of fasting, there will be not a bit of sexual desire or energy left in you. So it's just a matter how far do you want to push the crash dive. It's always possible to kill horniness by fasting. Because when you fast, the body says, sorry, I don't have energy for that thing, so I cut it off the list. It's not essential, so I can do without it. It is expendable. So this was the second leg in Agama here, that we do things from the Kaula tradition, which is very, very, a very, very secretive tradition. The third pillar of what we do here in Agama, of what Agama Yoga is, is the famous Kashmiri Shaivism or the Trika traditions, which is the very top. Like if you are looking for our top teachings, go no further than this. If Kashmiri Shaivism doesn't sound high enough for you, you've got a problem because I, in 30-something years of metaphysical studies, I never encountered anything even coming close to Kashmiri Shaivism. So if that's not good for you, you probably live in a fairy tale and you are waiting for a prince on a white horse because Kashmiri Shaivism is the very top. It's pure metaphysics. It's almost poetic philosophy. And we are very lucky here in Agama because we have the teachings of Kashmiri Shaivism in their fullness like there are many authors like uh, Swami Muktananda and um, other authors wrote about Kashmiri Shaivism and they taught bits and pieces of Kashmiri Shaivism, but they did not come even 25% into what we are doing here. So the, the tradition of Kashmiri Shaivism called Trika, with metaphysics, philosophy and the elite thing, which is, I consider it, the tradition which is strongest for reaching states of samadhi. Therefore, in Agama, this tradition comes a little bit later. Like we teach Hatha Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, we teach all the other things. And of course, meanwhile, people may study Kaula Tantric things or not, depending on their tendencies. And then when people are advanced enough, then they go into the Trika, into Kashmiri Shaivas. And this is a top discipline. This is working mostly on the crown chakra. It is something which we do in the advanced teaching groups here in uh, Kopangan. And uh, this is our way of reaching to the highest level. Like, can people reach uh, states of samadhi by doing Nata Sampradaya things? Sure. Like you can reach states of samadhi by standing on your head three hours every day. You can reach states of samadhi by doing lots of laya yoga. And those belong to Nata Sampradaya and to other such traditions. So yes, you can obtain high states of consciousness and paranormal properties or accomplishments by doing things from the Nata Hatha Kundalini things or things from the Kaula technologies 
like Ramakrishna was practicing a lot of worship of Kali and other things, which were Kaula teachings. You can, but out of all the technologies comparatively, it is my conclusion from my own experience with myself and others that the Kashmiri Shaivistic Trika metaphysical traditions, they are the top. That's why here we teach them as a sort of the cherry on top of the cake. Like after you laid the foundation and you did all things solid, then you start, those who are interested of course, they go for the big one. They go for the assaulting, the final top. And that is illustrated through that. I could say so much about Trika Kashmiri Shaivism. We have workshops every year because many people would like to see a glimpse of it before they have to wait four years, five years or something to get into that. And that's why we do workshops, retreats every year of Kashmiri Shaivism in which we give us a sort of an appetizer. We know that people who are beginners and take Kashmiri Shaivism, they are doing it more because they are curious and impatient but we know that if they want to really do that every day and to get that, then they have to get to the point where they do the advanced teachings and there it goes full on. So this is a very, very rare teaching. Each one of these, Nata Sampradaya, what doing asanas with chakras and nadis, and re- this is rare already. Kaula teaching, super rare. Today there is so much distorted tantra, pseudo-tantra out there to do it in a traditional way, it's again very rare. Trika is extremely rare. So we are having three things. To have all three of them in one and the same school, uh, that makes it unique. It makes it so very special. Also, now this was the third pillar. And as a fourth pillar, we have the other diverse things because in Agama, those of you who will want to go deeper, you will find some technologies, teachings, influences, which come from other than those three mentioned before. We, for example, definitely have influences from the classical forms of yoga, like Patanjali yoga. Like we teach things about Samyama, we teach things about Raja yoga and uh, things like that. Influences from Bhagavad Gita, we teach Bhagavad Gita to our teachers and I made a whole series of satsangs in the previous years about Bhagavad Gita, about the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. We have influences from other great teachers of India, especially in modern times, such as Shivananda, Vivekananda, Ramana Maharishi, Swami Shivananda, Paramahamsa Yogananda, with his Kriya Yoga. They All of them brought a few things, and wherever there was something good, like, For example, we do teach as exemplification how to do this Kriya Yoga technique which is taught in Kriya Yoga. But actually we feel that the Tantric Vipassana, which as it it is taught in the Vigyana Bhairava Tantra, is an improved and much better practice. That's why we give people a choice, but actually we most often advise people do the Tantric Vipassana because that's like Kriya Yoga with a bonus added to it. Although, of course, the people from Kriya Yoga would throw rotten tomatoes at me for saying this, because in their field they think that Kriya Yoga is the only thing that you can get. And this disturbs them to know that there is something which is alleged to go quite a bit beyond their beloved 
Kriya Yoga. So these are the typical sectarian things. Uh, I'm not going there. I'm simply objectively signaling what is in the tradition, what I learned, what I did, what gives results. And ultimately, I don't expect any sectarian reactions from people. I expect pragmatical reactions, like what works, works. It doesn't matter where it comes from or that person says, says that this is better than that. People are talking, but in practice, we are interested about what gives results, what is working. So you'll find influence in Agama, although it's uh, so much of a tantric form of yoga. Of course, there are influences from Vedanta, from classical yoga, from modern gurus, from the tradition of Bhagavad Gita, which is a Vaishnava tradition, basically. It's a Krishna mysticism tradition, and so on. That's part of the fourth pillar where we have a few things coming together. One of them was picking up things from other branches of yoga. Another one of them is Tibetan yoga. The yoga was exported to Tibet in approximately the 10th century, especially with the lineage of Tilopa, Naropa, Marpa, Milarepa, Gampopa, the five yogis who created the primary lineage of the Kargyutpa school, the Red Hat Lamas, as they are nicknamed. And uh, thus, these people imported whatever they could lay hands on from India. And funnily enough, there are even forms of yoga which disappeared in India, such as Pova, the transfer of consciousness, and which survived big time in Tibet. And then today, when we want to do the transference of consciousness and the art of dying, we actually do it from Tibetan yoga, because somehow the Indians managed to lose it. They, it simply got lost in the midst of history. There might be some lost manuscript in some private library, which will be discovered 150 years from now, which will, where somebody will say, ah, see, well, it existed in India. It existed, but not at, at a known level. It's a lost tradition. The Tibetan yogis thus preserved some very important stuff, which in India was lost. Uh, the Tibetan yogis even improved and adapted some of the things because, for example, many Indian yogis did not feel the need to perform a yoga for cold weather. For the simple reason that exception made of the north of India and for short time there, and exception made for the very high Himalayas, the climate in India is generally warm and tropical. A little bit in the south of India, definitely like here in Thailand. And nobody really feels the need to do any warming up of the body further on. On the contrary, in India you have Shitali Pranayama, which is the cooler down of the body. And we find techniques of yoga where you are advised to go and sit in the water up till here, because otherwise you will start boiling. You know, your body will go into boiling mode, so you have to cool down. But the Tibetans being confronted often with temperatures of 20 degrees centigrade below zero, they had to go into, so they created Tumo, the yoga of the internal fire, which some Indians from, some yogis from India, they demonstrated that they knew it. There's a wonderful book, I forgot right now the author of it, from the tradition of Dhirenda Brahmachari, where there is a guy who shows his guru, and there is a photo of this guru. He had been staying in meditation for so long, somewhere near Amarnath in Kashmir, where there is this ice lingam. He stayed in meditation so long that his body is covered by snow. 
has a layer of snow this thick on his body. And he's not dead. He's a living yogi in meditation. And he sits there. He's a bit of a big guy. And his body is covered with a thick layer of snow which fell upon him while he was meditating. So surely there have been yogis in the Himalayas and this who needed inner heat and this guy was having an incredible inner heat. But uh, you will find them much more in Tibet because the Tibetans, for the Tibetans it was vital, it was survival. So in Agama Yoga you find quite a bit of Tibetan yoga. As far as I remember the management even insisted that we again program a workshop on this Tibetan yoga as a whole of it in next year. And the special application of Tibetan yoga, especially, especially, is you find in our workshops of the art of dying, where the Tibetans have put together a methodology which is brilliant and which combined with the technical knowledge from India gives us some amazing uh, applications. So this also, you find I receive teachings from non-Tibetan teachers of Tibetan yoga, but also from Tibetan teachers. I compared notes. And therefore, in Agama, we do have part of the Tibetan yoga. Not only the art of dying, but others. I'm even teaching the Tumo technology in, uh, in the Tibetan yoga workshop. Uh, and that is because there are some very precious things. It is my dharma, it is my pledge in front of the Shiva consciousness that I have to be the messenger of the gods, I have to be like Hermes in the Greek tradition, I have to transmit the knowledge of yoga, and I am not allowed to let any of it fall aside the road. Many people say, Swami, why are you teaching 350 techniques of yoga? Who will do them? Not all of them one person, but some people will be interested in this 20, and some people will be interested in these 35 techniques. Therefore, Agama is very much also as an encyclopedic place, like a preserver of the tradition from which you can pick up and take whatever is most relevant for you. A few people will continue as the stewards of the tantric tradition, preserving it. But also we know that some people will take bits and pieces and apply rather this or rather that. It's the same with the Tibetan yoga. Once the Tibetan yoga has been given to us, we are entrusted with its preservation and with its propagation to the next. It's a responsibility which we cannot say, like I cannot say, you know what, I'm not going to teach Tibetan yoga anymore. I have to teach it because some of you should take it to the next generation and therefore it should continue existing. People say, shouldn't you leave the Tibetan yogis do that? Funny, I, when I was once in Dharamsala, I met with a Farang, with a Westerner who was a Buddhist monk and in, very interested in yoga. And he told me that he had been a Buddhist monk dressed in the maroon robes of the Buddhist monks. He had been a Buddhist Tibetan monk for 17 years. And in 17 years, he never managed to have anybody teach him, although he was looking for it, to teach him actual Tibetan yoga. And he heard two times in 17 years that somebody was supposed to teach some of it somewhere, but he couldn't attend it because of some other reasons. Therefore, even in the Tibetan environment, it is very, very seldom. And the advantage of teaching Tibetan yoga and all its things here in Agama is that you understand it completely different. 
I, we have had, we have all the time pupils coming in Agama from some Tibetan lamas, and then they understand what they do, and they go back to their colleagues and explain to them, and everybody understands three times better that people say, only now do I understand what is actually happening during the Tumo or the Pova practices. How come? You have learned it from a Tibetan Lama. You can't get more traditional than that in respect of Tibetan stuff. No, it, you, Swami Vivekananda is not as traditional in Tibetan lore as a very Tibetan Lama would be. Funny enough, people understand Tibetan yoga better in Agama than they understand it in that environment. Because in that environment is a little bit like in the old traditional environments from India. Things are not being explained. Like nobody tells you what's happening with the energy or this or that. You just do it for the next seven years and the effects will appear and then you will feel and you don't need too much intellectual explanation. The fact is that intellectual explanation might be in useless in a way, but most of the Westerners and most of the modern people who have at least a high school education won't practice anything unless you give them the explanation and they know what they are doing and why they are doing it. And that's why, funnily enough, we in Agama, even when it comes to Tibetan yoga, we have an incredible edge which I have tested with people coming from that environment and suddenly Agama Yoga opened their eyes um, immensely. And finally... Agama Yoga in its last pillar, in its fourth pillar where I spoke about other forms of yoga, Tibetan Yoga. Agama Yoga is open to other forms of spirituality <clears throat> due to our metaphysical understanding. You hear me and our teachers often making parallels from Sufism, from Christianity, from the sayings of Buddha, from Taoism and other bona fide traditional uh, teachings. And that is because we understand exactly how it works and it's very easy to equate practices when you do it in this way. That's why, uh, you know, we have people here who try the dervish dancing, Sufi whirling dancing and other, and other things and it worked just fine for them. They obtained pr people who tried the prayer of the heart, which is the Eastern Orthodox uh, secret form of prayer in Christianity and others and others and people integrated them in yoga in retreats in their who am I in their spiritual practice and they actually obtained very significant breakthroughs and very significant results that's what's happening when you can put things together so yes in Agama Yoga sometimes you'll find things from other forms of spirituality, not much, because we are not trying to make a salad at all costs, but only when necessary. Like, for I, as I often say, there is this thing, I just give an example, that in Indian and uh, Tibetan form of spirituality, very few gurus still insist on the necessity of opening the heart chakra under the form of modesty and humbleness. And the unfortunate result, although people say it, gurus know some of these things. Mahatma Gandhi spoke about this and so on. But still, you can see the tree is known by its fruits. When you look at the fruits and the results, 
many people seem never to have got a spanking from their guru about being a bit more humble, a bit less arrogant, or something like this. And then, when you, for example, read the Philokalia, the esoteric Christian writings on spiritual development, all the mystical saints who spoke about this, your jaw is dropping because every page of those 15, 20, 100 pages text, like it's a big tome of four thick volumes, every bit of it is only about, or not only, but it's talking a lot about humility, how to be humble, and that if you are not humble, you can so easily be deluded by the negative demonic forces, and then five years later, instead of being a spiritual teacher, you find yourself being in some very ugly place, which has happened so often, right? I remember the title of a yoga journal article some 20 years ago, which was called Gurus That Tumble Off the Pedestal. Like the guru is like a statue on a pedestal. People put gurus on a pedestal. And unfortunately, the 20th century, especially the second half of the 20th century, has witnessed lots of these idols shamefully tumbling off their pedestals, like making fools of themselves. And the fact that they made fools of themselves, it's their business, ultimately. Everybody is free to live their lives as they want. But unfortunately, these people making fools of themselves, they destroyed the confidence and the faith of a lot of candid and faithful disciples who thus got thrown emotionally into hell because of having their role model uh, tumbling down some very unpleasant places. And that's why um, I give an example that in Agama, when I teach people, and especially when people go into more advanced levels and teaching, I personally insist on verifying a little bit of their humbleness. Like, I do not very much like when our advanced teachers in Agama are reported as being arrogant. It, uh, it steps on my toes. I feel it as a personal provocation, and I feel it it's my duty to slap them over the wrist when they do that. Because uh, you're a spiritual teacher that is full of vanity, pride, and arrogance is almost a sure recipe for hell. And therefore, and this was lost. And if I found it in the Christian tradition, of course I'm importing it back into yoga because Ramakrishna was humble. Swami Shivananda was humble. Ramana Maharishi was humble. This tradition existed, but if it is not written and specifically said, then it has to be refreshed. And we find it very clearly outlined in the Christian mysticism. And therefore, that's why I say we want to be open to other forms of spirituality in case some lost truth is there. Also, as we speak about macrobiotics. Okay, macrobiotics is not a big form of spirituality, or metaphysics, but the macrobiotics with the teachings of George Oksava about yin and yang food and the balance of the yin and yang in the body, they are splendid. That is a lifetime of research in which a very insightful, stubborn man did thorough research in the mysteries of yin and yang 
and left us a treasure. And of course, that treasure should be preserved. Today, I'm dealing with neo-macrobiotic people who lost essential teachings from their own ancestor. Funny, you can find things of macrobiotics more staunchly preserved in Agama Yoga than in some circles that call themselves macrobiotic. So that's why I say there is this openness. And as a part of this also, you will notice always that we try to have as often as possible a scientific and rational approach. I am a person who is totally open towards mysticism. I'm a person that knows directly the existence of many, many mysterious, magical, and transcendent things. At the same time, I'm a person who is appalled by the madness which circulates in the New Age circles where people are babbling hysterical nonsense of the worst kind. And because of this, in Agama, we always want to go to the practical things. Like if you come and tell me that you are waving a crystal around me and you are making a change in my fifth dimensional body, you will get me rolling on the floor with laughter. Because you don't even know what a fifth dimensional thing means. If I would make you explain the fourth dimension, you would stumble down and not know. Like people who speak about fourth dimensional or fifth dimensional things, they should first rinse their mouth with Listerine thoroughly before... Because most often they are eating shit, really. They don't know what they are speaking about. And they borrow some pseudo-scientific language, which is making fools of them and what they are trying to say. And no serious person, no scientist, no engineer, no businessman or businesswoman, no rational person will listen to that nonsense. And we don't want this thing to happen with yoga. Yoga is already very mystical and it is aiming at some very subjective and very subtle things in the human being. And if you bring in yoga some of this looseness without, you know, like you do 108 Udhyana Bandhas. What effect do you get from those 108 Udhyana Bandhas? You know, no nonsense. We talk about the things which happen. No, we are practically oriented. That's why I liked and I insisted to the management of Agama. You don't know how difficult it was administratively for you. It all, but you don't know how much administration it took to bring to you this workshop, which sounded so simple and many of you took so lightly, which was called the Yoga of the Purpose. The Yoga of the Purpose is exactly an exemplification of this. You know, like you do yoga... And you can put a purpose into it, not phantasmagorically, not in a confused way. No, you know, like you do yoga with a purpose. Can you fulfill your purposes with yoga? No. Somebody, you know, this girl told me that I don't know if in this workshop or in another workshop, uh, which he did before, there were people, there was somebody who had this purpose. The yoga of the purpose was that they wanted to sell their car. They had a car for sale. Can yoga help you sell your car faster and at a better price? If it cannot, then yoga sucks. It's useless. If it is a good instrument, it can be used. Yes, even for a stupid thing like that. 
but it's stupid for us when we speak about it in a humoristic way, but for the person who has that need, it's actually a very urgent life need which is burning for them, and for them it's very relevant. So, therefore, this scientific and rational approach exists very much, and I encourage it among teachers that they should do research, that they should read, that they should see the newest studies, like not take anything for granted, and therefore, um, this we like very much in Agama, because we see that the trend of the world is to go into the science is the new religion. No, if if a doctor and a scientist tells you that you have to eat an extract of edible yeast for your skin or for whatever, you do it. You never say, oh, but yeast stings, or yeast is just a fungus or something. You eat it because science says it's good. So science is more powerful than the gurus of your. No, because in the old days, if your guru told you, do 10-day Oshava diet and don't ask too many questions, you did it. Because you believed that your guru knows what he or she is talking about. Today, the same credit is given to science. And that's why yoga cannot go further in the 21st century without justifying its things as much as possible, because some things are not possible scientifically and rationally. So, as a conclusion, we can say that here in Agama Yoga, Agama Yoga is a yoga with energies, a yoga which preaches the sublimation of energy, all the concepts of energy, I'm not going to go into that. We talk about the chakras, we talk about the five bodies, we use typical tantric methods such as mantras, yantras, Uh, we understand the use of the sexual energy, and all the other things which I mentioned there, are included in Agama. Actually, the time when I was giving the name of Agama, because when I was teaching in India, I was still, uh, I've been one more year there with uh, Swami Munishanand, and I was teaching in his ashram. Therefore, the yoga, which we thought was under the ages of that ashram. But then when I uh, spoke with a few other teachers, Uh, Then it was one of my teachers, Shankar Baba, who suggested, he said, look, this yoga which you are teaching, this is Agama. This is purely the Agamic tradition. All the aspects of it, they are convergent with Agama. And that's why he gave the suggestion, you should call it Agama Yoga. This is how the school from one of my teachers got to be called Agama Yoga. And the style of yoga which we are doing here is called Agama Yoga. And uh, as we say in a famous lecture to our teacher training program pupils, we say Agama Yoga is probably the best form of yoga in the world today, precisely because of this dynamite mixture of almost everything. Like almost everything that you hear is strong, efficient. You can find it in its direct form or it in its adapted form here in Agama Yoga. That's why... Um, we are very happy with it. If I would hear that there is an essential, extraordinary form of yoga which has results in what interests us somewhere, I would go and learn it, send one of my advanced students to go and learn it. I would import it, graft it, I would add it to Agama Yoga. 
and uh, actually I'm not saying that my quest is finished. I'm still open-minded and if there will be things in the world spirituality which I'll find that they are very good for Agama, for Agama students to have and it can make them evolve faster, uh, be less, have less challenges in their personal evolution, reach high states of consciousness more quickly and so I would immediately do it because ultimately I consider that that is my spiritual duty to the pupils of the school to give them an as good as possible method, an as perfect as possible method for them to advance spiritually. So that is what Agama Yoga is made of. As I said last time, even this traditional element from the Bhagavad Gita with Karma Yoga, it is added here very much. One of the typical things of Karma Yoga which we have in Agama is that, for example, some of the pupils of Agama choose to become yoga teachers and then they teach yoga to learn yoga at the same time. It sounds paradoxical, but actually I, we have encountered teachers who said only after I taught the first level as here in Agama, only then I suddenly realized that I understood it. Like while I was a student, but when I taught it, I had to understand it in another way because I had to pass it on to the pupils. And then it's like God gave me an understanding out of necessity, out of mercy. Like Shiva said, if you don't understand, then definitely you won't be able to send, give to your pupils. So here is some understanding, you know, like a grace. That's why teaching yoga is a splendid example of karma yoga. You know, that you do some action selflessly, you do things, and then this is in itself a method of yoga. You can see it less when people are cleaning the yoga hall or when people come to change the pillow cases or other things or when people do a lot of other karma yoga typing a lecture or doing a registration work or some other things. Many people fail to see how important this is in a tantric way and how much this is part of agama yoga because it is yoga through action. It is something which you do in prakriti, in the world of manifestation. And exactly, but, but this thing with the teaching is for some people more clear. Like there are people who would say, I started teaching yoga and my evolution doubled up in speed. Like what I did before that, and then when I started doing this, I noticed that my progress is much faster. Therefore, and what do they do? Because technically they do the same thing. Padahastasana, Shirshasana, Pranayama. But because they do it for others, then there is grace. And that grace accelerates evolution even more. That's why I want to encourage you all to do Karma Yoga. Maybe it's not your lifestyle to be teachers, not everybody is cut to be a teacher or has aspiration to be a teacher. But I want you to understand from this example with the teaching that actually Karma Yoga is very powerful and we see people who do Karma Yoga and they clearly evolve 
spiritually. And that's why Agama Yoga, we want it in the future as well to be an implicated, involved form of yoga. We are tantric people. We are not living in a cave, naked, smeared in ashes and kind of shunning the world and saying, the world can go to hell, I'm doing my meditation and that's it. We are tantric people that are trying to create changes here and now. The aspiration of the tantric people, as I told you last time, is not to leave the physical body and go into nirvana, but to attain nirvana while in the physical body still, and therefore operate some transformation here in this world. Not you going to God, but bringing God, manifesting God here. Therefore, karma yoga is part of this, because karma yoga is allowing us to create a better world. That's a tantric concept, because the people who don't believe in a better world They believe in escaping from the world and going to nirvana, going to the kingdom of heaven where everything is supposed to be fantastic and good. While down here, it's a valley of tears. No, in the tantric yoga, even here, like in Agama, people say, how did you create, Swami, this incredible bubble here? That's how it is. It's karma yoga. It's possible only with those of you who do karma yoga, because... I have not changed the case of a single pillow in the last five years. I did change cases of pillows ten years ago. In the last five years, there are other karma yogis who do that. And meanwhile, I can take care of other things. Therefore, this is not just my thing. It's all of you who do even a minute of karma yoga in this school. You are part of creating this. We are creating an island. Sri Aurobindo pushed it so far that he believed he could create a whole city. He wanted to create a city of God, a sort of island in the middle of India where the light of God will descend and manifest, where there will be enlightened beings, yogis, you know, holiness on earth. Unfortunately, his continuators have not been persistent enough on his dream, and today, Auroville, as it is called, mostly a place of ecology and other things than a place of metaphysics and that. But still, I am saying that other yogis have had the same feeling, that acting in the world, you make, your, you make something. Even non-yogic spiritualists of the 20th century, they put it in a funny way. Gurdjieff, who was such a provocative spirit, he said, it's not enough to be good. You have to be good for something. Like people sometimes have the funny thing, I'm okay because I'm good. Even if that lacks modesty, still people would say, well, you know, I'm generally good. I'm doing good. I'm meditating. I'm a moral and ethical person. I'm vegetarian. I'm this, I'm that. I'm good. And Gurdjieff simply says it's not enough. You are good, but if nobody can feel that you are good, if you don't make it manifest, it's you are, not, you are breathing the oxygen of other people. You know, it's like, do something for this world, which means be good for something, be good at something. This is the very principle of karma yoga, that everybody wants to leave a trace of their passing through this world. 
And as I often tell to people, you may wish to leave a trace by going to Mother Teresa and doing voluntary work. You may wish to leave a trace by doing a donation to your church or whatever you do. Why wouldn't you want to make a difference with Agama when Agama is creating so much good for so many people? Starting from the fact that many people corrected very hard health problems coming to yoga and to Agama and finishing with the fact that so many people have changed emotionally, psychologically, mentally, spiritually and it actually brings so much. That's why, of course, Karma Yoga is a powerful option because it's your thing. You know, if you stay, you're going to look back and you said, I did yoga for 20 years. That's very good. And what did you do in these 20 years? Oh, I did yoga. Yeah, I heard that from the first time. But what else did you do? Like, did you leave any trace? Or you selfishly just looked up your own belly button and you did yoga? Like, what did you contribute to the world with? That's the idea of karma yoga, right? That we cannot live without wishing to bring a contribution. And agama is such a modest contribution in which you can have your own part with karma yoga. Karma yoga is Bhagavad Gita tradition. You know, it's not, people will not see it as tantric. And yet, it's a fully tantric understanding of the reality. With this, we have finished for tonight. Namaste, and thank you for resisting and for joining this satsang. With this, we have finished for tonight. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.